Uh, Heavenly Father, I don't know why I'm always surprised that when I teach on something, in this case on mercy, that I have to learn to give it, not just receive it. And so um, the anger, bitterness, judgment in my heart, uh, I confess, I ask for your Holy Spirit to give me clarity where that's coming from. A lot of times I know it comes from my desire to control and to look good. Um, And so I pray you'd smash those idols afresh today in my heart. Um, Forgive me, Father, if this is disruptive to the gathering of your people um, and what you desire, and yet I trust that you work even through these things. And so, um, yeah, that that sense of vulnerability and of uh, imperfection and I don't know, I, I guess one of my fears, God, is people are never going to listen to me preach if they really know how busted I am and that these things will to you. So forgive me for the lie underneath that lie. Um, and I do pray in the coming moments and days you give me clarity, even as we come to your word. Your word is really good at exposing what's going on in our hearts and giving us not just the, the problem but the solution. And so I pray even as I preach that you would present the truth to my own heart and, and do that for my brothers and sisters as well. Um, so even though I need to confess this, Father, to you, I pray that you would do what you're always really good at, is, which is to decenter the messenger so that the message would be central, so that your word would be central, so that your goodness, grace, and power would be palatable to my friends, my sisters, and brothers. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Um, hey, open to Romans chapter 11. Uh, Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish a chapter, which always feels like really momentous. It feels like a momentous occasion when we arrive at another milestone uh, in Romans. Um, Romans chapter 11. Next week, we're going to do a short excursus from our Romans series and talk about rest for a month um, from John 15. I would encourage you to buy Marva Don's book, uh, Keeping the Sabbath Holy. We are going to be stealing so much of her content. Um, and we may even need to reach out to a publisher and just go, is this cool? <laughs> um, we'll give her credit all over, but anyway. Uh, Marvadon has been incredibly instructive to me in general, but in particular as it comes to rest and Sabbath and understanding what it means that on the seventh day God rested and why our Creator would do that and what that means for us as people. Um, but today we're going to conclude Romans uh, 11. And we've been considering this 11th chapter uh, Um, And among many themes that have popped up, we've learned about the the process of salvation, if you will, which may seem like a completely um, unhelpful thought in this day and age to understand like the Jew and Gentile, who was first and why they both and all of this. And yet I hope what what we have been seeing is there's tremendous gospel fruit for us to understand, in particular how there are two types of Israel, if you remember, two types of Jews that Paul has in mind, the, the ethnic Israel and the spiritual Israel. And Paul says near the end, uh, or rather near the beginning of chapter 9, that there are children of the flesh and children of the promise. This fact that not all Jews believed in Jesus presented then a temptation to the Gentiles, those non-Jewish readers. So as Paul articulates this heavily in chapters 9 and 10, there are two different Israels. These ones are saved. These ones are not. And trying to articulate that, he sort of pivots in Romans eleven thirteen. 13. He says, now I'm going to talk to you Gentiles because I know you're probably getting prideful. You're probably getting arrogant. And I want to tell you that's not a good idea. So he's redirecting them away from, from that. And why? why? Why is he... Uh, having to do that? Well, because, as we have learned, in an instant, God can make your enemies family, right? And so, 
Paul is writing to say, be very careful how you treat these Jewish people who you think you're better than because you got Jesus and they didn't because of the week. So be very careful how you treat your enemies because they can soon be family. And he makes everyone a spiritual family, what we've been learning, the same way, by grace through faith. And so through this whole letter, we see that God justifies people by love. Everyone he justifies, he justifies by love. So Jews and Gentiles, though contextually, they didn't like each other. Uh, Their worlds were very different, very divided, perhaps as much as they possibly could be back in the day. But what Paul is going to tell us today is that God has used Jews to save Gentiles, and he used his Gentiles to save Jews. So he's really messing with their worldviews. And and I think this is an important principle. If ever you feel like you've constructed a really good box for the gospel and God to fit in, he's going to smash it. He's going to absolutely blow that thing up because if he justifies by love, no amount of our boundaries and borders to legalism and methodology and religion are going to work because he's like operating under a completely different principle. Are you with me? And so this is what's going on in Romans. And I hope that what you've been having to face through Romans is like, oh yeah, I kind of judge those people too. Oh yeah, I kind of thought it was because I was like this that he like brought me in because I was first string on the team or whatever, right? That, that spiritually, morally, we bring nothing to the table. We have all been received and justified by grace. Now, as one writer, I think, helped explain it, that God saves all without distinction, but not all without exception. In, in other words, God saves everyone the same way, but that doesn't mean he saves everyone. And that's a hard truth for us to face. That's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about why. I want to talk about how we make sense of a God who is described as powerful and loving, that he saves, and yet a God who is also described as judge and wrathful, that he doesn't save everyone. How, how is he both of these things? In order to accomplish this, we'll focus on what I believe the Apostle Paul focuses on here in this particular passage, God's mercy. See, the more we understand mercy, the more we'll understand this duality, this tension about who God is. We'll order our time together this way. The nature of mercy, what it is, the need for mercy, uh, why we're all desperate for it, and then thirdly, the mission of mercy or what it ultimately accomplishes in us. So we'll look at the nature, the need, and the mission of mercy. And Father, it's always really comforting to know that you want us to understand your word more than we do. You want us to learn obedience, to learn worship, to learn about your love and grace and mercy more than we ever could. And so today, in this moment, I'm simply asking, because of your character and your goodness, that you would accomplish your purposes in us, that we would see more clearly who you are in your power and your grace and your love, and that through that, through that vision of your righteousness and holiness, we'd catch a glimpse for who we are better, and then we'd know how to live. Uh, in response, that you would change us on the spot is our prayer. Make us more like the church you're calling us to be, because we know that one day Jesus has promised he's going to present the church to himself without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. And so we are eager to move in that direction as you make us pure and holy, even as you are today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So I want to begin by helping us understand what it is we're talking about when we're talking about mercy. Because like many words that we toss around in the church or in our own faith, we need to be clear about what are we talking about when we talk about mercy. Now, Paul has already told us that salvation in Romans 9, 16 depends not on human will, but on God who has what? Mercy. Which is really good news. Mercy is something within God, and mercy is something we require for salvation. 
And we see mercy at work in our passage today. Look at the first three verses, Romans chapter 11, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient, Paul tells his Gentile readers, to God, but now have received mercy, now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So God used the Jews to save the Gentiles, and now he's using the Gentiles to save the Jews. And then he summarizes it this way. For God has consigned, verse 32, all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Paul is saying everyone is disobedient. Everyone is sinful. He says, Gentiles, you were at one time disobedient to God. He says, the Jews, now you are, have been disobedient. And yet, they're both shown mercy. What's more, it's all part of God's plan. Notice Paul summarizes there in verse 32 that God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? Why has he done that? He answers that question for the express purpose of having mercy on all. The mercy, though, is impossible to define without first considering that it's a part of God's nature. We have to look at who he is. Because when seen in God, we realize that mercy is not a behavior only. It's a character quality. It's a character trait. Mercy is not, therefore, merely an action, something that we do. It's a quality. So it's not what God does. It's who God is. Or as author Dane Ortland writes, for God to be merciful is for God to be God. For God to be merciful is for God to be God. A great, yet perhaps very unexpected place to begin is Lamentations. See, the book of Lamentations is a series of five poems of, you guessed it, themed around the same idea of lament. And we're actually going to start reading this book, not tomorrow, but the following Monday, as uh, our reading guide will organize five readings a day through Lamentations. So be on the lookout for those notifications. Uh, But the thing uh, that is perhaps just as obvious as the subject matter of Lamentations is its sophistication, its order, its precision. See, even though numbering of the Bible didn't take place until the 13th century when chapters were first introduced, and then on into the 16th century when uh, even the numbering of verses was introduced, even before all of that, we see an incredible painstaking order in Lamentations. But those numbers merely reveal it. You see, the first two poems and the last two poems are exactly 22 verses. And the poem in the middle, the third one, is exactly three times as long. There are 66 verses. And right in the middle of that third chapter, about verses 31 through 33, it says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from the heart or grieve the children of men. In the middle of the book, so in Hebrew literature, poet is, and right in the middle of the book, a book about suffering, a book about consequence, a book about grief, a book about pain, all at the hand of God, the poet centers the mercy of God. He puts the mercy of God in the middle of one of the most uncomfortable books of the Bible to read. By literary design, then, we see the point of Lamentations. God's steadfast love, God's compassion, His mercy The poet says, yes, God has brought severe wrath on his people. He has caused grief, but that's not who he is. Affliction, he says, does not come from his heart. So what does come from his heart? Mercy. Now, how could mercy be the point of judgment? How could mercy be the point of a book filled with consequence and grief? For decades, theologians have recognized what they call God's natural works and God's strange works. 18th century revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards was one of the first to sort of categorize God's qualities this way. And he said, 
that God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He is a God who delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Now, if you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, you are in the minority, but if you know anything about Jonathan Edwards, you know that one of his most famous sermons is sinners in the hand of an angry God, right? If you know anything about him, you've known that, or perhaps you've known his view on slavery, which was horrid, and he needed to repent of it and regretfully didn't. And so this is one of the great schisms that we see in the early church. It's a misunderstanding of these sorts of things. But even in Edwards' mind, with such a broken view of so many other things and really a huge understanding of the holiness and judgment of God, he still sees ultimately that what God delights in is mercy. A judgment is his strange work. Now, by strange, Edwards does not mean artificial or contrary to his nature. Rather, he means it's not his quality. It's not his character. It's not the truest thing about him. It's not at his center. His natural works spring from his heart. His strange works are responses to sin, are his righteous responses to sin. Consider what God said to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33 of Ezekiel. He said, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn what Paul said to young Timothy, his protege, the one he was mentoring through writing letters and friendship to to be a church planter, to be a local church elder. He said, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God desires, or God's desire, or what's from his heart, even in the face of of sin, of our sin, is to see us turn back, to repent, to be saved, to come to knowledge of him. That's natural to him. And yet, if and when people don't turn back in repentance, God's strange work is to judge and to give consequence in order, or rather in other words, it's his wrath. This is what we see unfolding in Lamentations. This is what we see unfolding in Romans chapter 11. And that's what the nature of mercy is all about. It's about this ultimately natural work of his heart to show love and to withhold consequence from guilty sinners like you and me. And his nature then speaks, I think, to need. You see, mercy is beautiful because, because wrath is real. The beauty of mercy is seen in juxtaposition to the reality of wrath, if you will. More broadly, we might say that what is strange to God depends on our understanding of what is natural to him. As it relates to mercy, God cannot have mercy on us unless he first judges us. Here's what I mean. Mercy is God's love towards us in the face of our sin. When sin has been acknowledged and a just consequence or punishment has been determined, then, then and only then mercy is actually possible. Why? How can we say that? Because great, grace is unmerited love. It's a gift given. Even mercy is a consequence withheld, or maybe we could say that grace is getting what you do not deserve, right? And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve because you don't have the merit for it, right? And mercy is not getting what you deserve by your sin you have earned, or what you do deserve, rather it's withholding. In our passage, Paul is saying that mercy is necessary for salvation. Our sins must be acknowledged and God's wrath must be determined. It's only then when forgiveness even makes sense. Think about it. Have you ever tried to forgive someone or to ask for forgiveness while never acknowledging the need for it, while not speaking about the offense? It's impossible. This is why we've invented the language of sorry. Because if I just say I'm sorry, I don't have to say for what I've done. I can just tell you how I feel. 
I feel sorry that happened, but I'm not acknowledging offense. So we should be very careful when in our closest relationships we're using language of sorry as sort of an appeasement to not actually identify where sin has shown up. Because unrepentant sin will always lead to more sin. This is what we learn in the story of David. We learn this throughout all of Scripture. And so we've sort of invented language to sort of come up with mercy without ever acknowledging sin. And I would just suggest to you it never goes far enough and it never actually rectifies the problem because it's never acknowledged the problem. And it builds up in any relationship, particularly our closest ones. Paul put it this way with the uh, church in Corinth when he said, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them. Now, what it doesn't say is not counting their trespasses. He says he's not counting it against them. Why? Because he was counting it against Christ. Right? So, so mercy is not God ignoring our sin. Mercy is God looking right at our sin and saying, My son will pay for that. My son will pay for that. I will withhold consequence from you, but I cannot withhold consequence. I will put it on my, my son. See, because he counted his, uh, or our sin rather against his son, one preacher has put it this way, that we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could possibly dream. It's kind of scary to actually look at our own hearts and to delve into the deep recesses of our broken, incredible possibility of God's affection for us in the middle of it. See, the doctrine of mercy, I think, perfectly exposes this duality. Now, it's hard to talk about mercy. It's hard to admit our need for it, but we have to. It takes delving into our sinful condition. Verse 32 again says, for God has consigned all to disobedience. That's a bold and big statement that he might show us, or rather that he may have mercy on all. So it's vital to note here theologically that God is not predetermining that all would sin. He's not making everyone disobey. That would make God the author, or at least complicit in our sin. Sin is not natural to God, and it's not even strange to him. He cannot do it. He cannot cohabitate with sin. He's incapable of sin. Rather, when Paul says God consigned all to disobedience, he is saying that God has so ordered the world that sin, being the villain within us, binds us up and traps us in what Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard calls sickness unto death. Remember when Paul said back in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He has described my Monday through Sunday, right? That there is constantly this desire. I was like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I desire to do that, and I lack even the ability to do that. That's consignment. That's the way that God has ordered things. Sin has so disordered and reworked the human condition into disobedience that sin and disobedience are now the sickness which only the mercy of God can heal. Why? Because mercy is consequence withheld. Or perhaps more accurately, mercy is consequence paid by someone other than the sinner. This is what real forgiveness looks like in real space and time, by the way. If I'm to forgive you, I'm supposed to tell you I'm going to shoulder the consequence with you. Holding a grudge is, is say, maybe saying sorry, but then holding the consequence over somebody and just go, if you mess up, I'm going to bring this up. You know how like all of those things that someone else did to you come back up in an argument when they start accusing you of stuff? It's amazing how good our memory is when we feel like we're being attacked. Well, back in 2001, like you said, and you looked at me, all of a sudden, all of this stuff comes up. In other words, what have, what have we done? We haven't laid that consequence on our own shoulders. We haven't weathered that. We haven't paid that. 
women shouldered that burden with them. We've just told them, you still need to carry it, even though we'll keep moving on. But mercy is the the changing, rather, of consequence, of burdens, namely upon Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what mercy, and that's why mercy, rather, is natural to God. That's who he is. Jesus is our mercy. But this also is why we all need mercy. Romans brings up sin a lot, doesn't it? Some of us have been mad uncomfortable for these past 24 years that we've been navigating this text. See, regularly, perhaps in my teaching or the teaching at Church in the Square, we talk a lot about sin and shame and pride and brokenness in our hearts and minds. Talking this way has perhaps never been more out of touch with a particular cultural moment. It feels harsh. It feels self-deprecating. It feels defeating. Our impulse as modern people is to do what? Stay happy, to stay loving towards others and ourselves. We've even coined a phrase, what? Good vibes only. We wear shirts. We shellac them on our mugs like, stay away if you have bad news. This is good vibes only. Sin and death don't feel like good vibes only. It feels like a violation of our moral law in this day and age, right? This calls us, and this rather causes us, not to think deeply about God's strange works, but to only highlight his natural works. So I know that God judges, but he's really loved, so let's not look over there. Let's not go behind that door. Let's not go into that dark corner of his judgment and his wrath, because let's just focus on his grace. See, we as Christians can kind of be like these good vibes only Christians, right? We just want the good news. But the way that the scriptures communicate us to the heart of God in our fallen and broken world is to speak to our whole story. This is why I love the Bible. I love the Bible because it never pulls puns in my heart and in the world. Because you see, Jesus is not another mask that you can wear over your pain. Jesus is not simply another filter that you can put over your life to make you look better. Jesus is not another life hack to just make you feel better. Jesus is the great physician who is able, willing, and desirous to actually heal your pain. In other words, to make you better. He's not about looking better, feeling better, or just wearing something that looks like you are better. He actually is in the business of making you whole, of transforming you. In my experience, despite good vibes only and these sorts of things, we actually are a people who are willing to admit our need more than perhaps previous generations not just in age, but I think in culture, in in this time in history. We're a people who I think are willing to admit some of our need. We're willing to admit our darker emotions. We are dispelling, I think, even now, shame associated with things like mental health and body concept and more. I, I, I think perhaps more than ever, we are willing to look at some of these hard truths. I think our problem is admitting where that challenge, where that difficulty, where that evil, where that darkness comes from. Because though we are a people willing to talk about some of these hard things, we always want to defend that at our core, we are actually good. At our core, we actually are not that bad, that I have things I need to work out, but most of my problems come from outside in, not inside out. And so I need to change my social media interaction. I need to change the friends that I have. I need to change the counselor that I go to. I need to mitigate the things outside of me so that I can continue to proliferate this lie about my need for mercy. It's just, it's limited. See, I think what we, are, what we are experiencing is the limit of earthly wisdom and earthly imagination. We are seeing there's a problem, but we still want to be the solution. We're seeing the issue, but we still want to hold. Here's, here's what I'm talking about. Give, give me grace in this. Back in 2017, Jay-Z released his 13th studio album, which I know many of you 
know that perfectly. You know his discography. Um, the opening track is a track called Kill Jay-Z. It's a song about dismantling his ego. It's a song of contrition. He's a bad looking of mistakes, about how the public views him, things he's owning up to for the first time, things he's working on and vowing to change. In fact, I just found out this week that Jay-Z changed the way that he writes his name before the release of that album to communicate a transformation that he was taking. They're all capital letters now. It's a way of him changing his name to say, I'm now a new person. Here's what he says in that song. Cry, Jay-Z. We know the pain is real, but you can't heal what you never reveal. What's up, Jay-Z? You know you owe the truth to all the youth that fell in love with Jay-Z. Now, these bars, as they are called, right, are striking, particularly because they are lines in a rap song, an art form that has made a name for itself stumping on hubris and power. Yet, if we pay attention, the name change, the song, and Jay-Z himself is all being offered as the penance, as the source of transformation. So the beauty of the song is admitting, you can't heal what you don't reveal. I want to be honest, but I also am the one who can fix it. I want to be honest, but I also still want to be my Savior. See, when we don't admit or see the depth of our need, we always think we can be our own Savior. See, church, here's, here's what I'd like for us to understand. If you think you are enough to fix the problem, you don't know the depth of the problem. If you think all you need is you, you have not gone down yet to the depth of the brokenness of the human heart, yours and mine. See, to know we need mercy is not just that others are doing well. It's noble, but it's also about understanding that our need is not just outside of us, but within us. Why? Because we can't reframe the problem as the solution. If I'm the problem, I can't be the solution. If the issue is within me, I need salvation to come from outside of me. Are you tracking with me? See, I sin. I'm a sinner. I'm consigned to disobedience. Therefore, my ability to better myself has limits. Not only so, but human imperfection is not simply about immaturity, right? Sometimes I think we go, I'm just going to get older and wiser and older and wiser. Come on. Have you not met a 60 or 70-year-old person who is really angry and is not older and wiser? And haven't you ever met a 13-year-old kid that has wisdom to offer you that you thought, I've never seen or understood that my entire life? Wisdom is not simply about age. Wisdom is about understanding the truth and how we live that out, which can come at any particular time. We're not simply growing. We are a people who have sinned against people. We are a people who have sinned against the Holy God. Therefore, we have a need that we can't meet within ourselves because the problem is within ourselves. See, sin is in me. I've sinned against someone who is greater than me. I need rescue from someone who loves me. That's mercy. See, the Bible's vision of mercy is necessarily a work by, done by someone outside of us who is over us and who is for us. We need divine mercy. We need cosmic forgiveness. And so God reveals himself as the God who we are not. He's outside of us. God alone can be merciful. Why? Because he's over us. He's the one whom we have offended and sinned against. God desires to be merciful to us because he loves us. So God is merciful to us. Here's the good news that Paul is getting at with his Jewish and his Gentile readers. If it were up to people, you and me, some of us would be hopeless because we couldn't save ourselves, right? 
we could look around and just go, uh, probably not. Probably not this person. I actually don't think their salvation's legit because I've seen them behave during the week. Or we wouldn't actually share the gospel with some people go, they're too far gone, right? If it depends on me being my own savior, some people are counted out of. So we should be a people constantly shocked at who's getting in. Like, wow, God's mercy got you too? That's wild. That's crazy. See, receiving mercy only requires that you admit you need it. That's it. That's it. And the fact that it's based on mercy, based on God's love and forgiveness, means that there is no depth of need that his mercy cannot reach. There is no depth of consequence or debt that you could accumulate that ultimately would render you unsavable. Now, this is important for our salvation, but how ought that change the way that we live our lives? Aren't there some people that we've said, you've sinned too much against me, I'm done with you? Or some people who we think we've messed up so much with them, there's no way that relationship could get repaired. Now, to be sure, sometimes we need to set limits. Sometimes we need to set boundaries. But have those limits and boundaries been set by mercy or self-protection and fear and anger? Have those limits been set because you believe the gospel or because you disbelieve it? See, we are a people who have not just been extended mercy, but we are also those who extend mercy to others. This should lead us to something should lead us to worship. That's the mission of mercy. You see, having considered mercy's nature and our need, we ought to wonder, so what's the point? Where does all this mercy direct us? The point of mercy is not another chance to do right on our own. This is so important. God has not been merciful for you, toward you to give you another shot. Now try it again. Let's see if you did it. This is where I err a lot in parenting. I'm going to let you get a pass now. I'm not going to give you a consequence. The purpose of mercy toward my children is often, one, I just am uncomfortable. I don't want to have to go through with it, right? I'm just being lazy, real talk. But it's also, I just want to give them another shot so they learn and figure it out. With God, he is not just giving us another shot. Mercy is not just an opportunity to start over. The point of mercy is to worship. We, we see that there was no other way this could happen. There was no other way that I could be saved. There's no other way I could be forgiven. There's no other way for that relationship to be mended. And yet God demonstrates his mercy for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this begins to animate my heart. And what happens? Well, Romans 11, verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of his ways. For who has known the searchable or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul, interestingly, borrows from the writings of Isaiah and Job and launches into praise. He rejoices and thanks God. He worships him. Mercy has led him to worship. So the mission of mercy is to stir your heart to worship, not activate your action to do better next time right? It's not supposed to make sure you go, all right, God was, was merciful toward me this time, but I know if I mess up again, mercy's going to run out. I better get it right this time and therefore operate even out of more fear than I did previously. The mission of mercy is worship. Specifically, there are a few lessons for us here. First, I think we can observe that God's mercy unifies your heart and your mind. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained in his commentary on Romans that what kindles the apostle's heart is his mind. In other words, the book of Romans in general, and this portion of the letter in particular, are not merely facts and arguments of doctrine meant to sharpen your thinking, right? That's good, that's important. 
they are not less than that, but they are more. You see, as your mind gets clearer on the nature of God and his mercy, your heart should kick into gear and be overwhelmed at the thought that you, yes, even you and I, even I have been forgiven. You see, mercy is meant to engage the whole person. Most commentators believe Paul sort of loses himself in the moment here. He's not just adopting and adapting some hymn that was going out in the day. He was grabbing hold of Scripture, applying them to his life, and worshiping the God of the Bible because of what he had done and because of who he is. Right? Lloyd-Jones goes on to say there are times when that mind can only go accept and adore. For some of our personalities, that makes perfect sense. We, just give me an excuse. I will go like Jesus trance, varsity level worship, right? Just give me an excuse to worship Jesus. For others of us, we like to slowly study the scriptures and dissect every page and paragraph and punctuation mark, and when it's proven, then I'll worship, but really more in the action in my heart, right? Paul's whole being is being engaged. Even for a brilliant person like Paul, he's willing to acknowledge that some things are far too great for him to understand. And rather than causing disbelief, what does it do? It amplifies his worship because mercy invites your whole self into worship. So that's one lesson. The second lesson we learned from Paul's uh, worship moment here is that God's mercy compels us to look to God more and more and more. Remember how we said that mercy is beautiful because wrath is real. See, when we understand the depth and direness of our predicament, when we fathom even the slightest bit of that, as, as Paul reminded us earlier in Romans, that for the wrath of God is revealed, right, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, we catch a glimpse of the brilliance of God's mercy. The more we catch, catch on to that, See, therefore, the more we see our need, the more we see his mercy. The more we see our dependency, the more infective, infected we are to learn and desirous and instinctual it becomes to see God in every single situation. Right? One of our great issues as a people is we don't see God in everything that we do. We see him in the spiritual context. He's at church, but not at my job. Trust, we think that he doesn't show up, and therefore we wait for him in different spaces. Maybe my quiet time, which is just like reading your Bible at some point, and if that doesn't happen, then maybe I haven't been with him. If I miss church a couple of times, I've got, right, that he's just in these, but the more we see our dependency, the more we need who God is. The more we understand that, the more we'll see him. It's like that meme I think was floating around Instagram for a while, right? You don't think you need Jesus to go to heaven. You need Jesus to go to Walmart, right? That kind of, that kind of heart. That, that, can you imagine if we were a people like that? I don't just need Jesus for these big spiritual overwhelming things. I need Jesus to just know peace today. I need Jesus to write this email. I need Jesus to listen to my children, to hear their heart. I need Jesus to see my neighbor and to know how it is I might engage them when they are in a situation that is far beyond me, right? I think the more we see our need, the more we see God. I think one of the scripture to pray before your meal, I know some of us maybe were raised in a home where it was like the 11th commandment and that if you eat food before you've prayed, like you're gonna go to hell or something crazy like that. Well, first of all, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> um, but second of all, there are some things that are <laughs> in the Bible. Like, we should acknowledge that God provides all that we need. That, like in Matthew, when he teaches, like, if you think the birds have everything, how much more is your Heavenly Father going to take care of you? And so a, a prayer before a meal is a way that we teach ourselves and perhaps others in our family or community to see God, 
to see God. Like, yeah, this is just Taco Tuesday. I get it. And I was there when you bought it. And I know exactly where the Topo Chico came from, right? But God provided everything we needed for that all to show up here. Therefore, acknowledging him before I enjoy it is a way of seeing him in everything that we do. So yes, maybe praying before a meal is not the 11th commandment, but it sure teaches me to see God, to say this is his mercy, this is his goodness, this is his grace. See, the more I understand my need, the more I see God. This is what Paul is teaching us here. The third lesson and final one. God's mercy goes beyond our comprehension. And for our modern society that prizes intellect, this is a really hard one to understand. See, somewhat connected to this lesson, Tim Keller explains, a God whose counsel we could fully grasp, whose ways we could fully discern, and whose nature we could fully explain in our human minds would be fairly, a fairly limited God. Paul is so taken by mercy, not because he understands it completely, but because he doesn't. It's not that he has figured out all of the facts and goes, because of the facts, I worship God. No, it's because I've found the end of myself, and there is still infinitely more of God, I worship him. I don't understand all of this, and still I worship God of what he has done for us. We worship God because there is so much of him we have yet to explore and will never understand. See, one of the primary reasons to worship God is that we don't understand him. He is so altogether different, altogether holy, and so the prophet Isaiah says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, if you wait to worship God until you fully understand him, you will never worship him. If you wait to worship God for his mercy and understanding his mercy about why did you choose me? What is it about me? Like, let's just have a little moment here about why it You'll never worship him because he saved you for him, for his glory, for his worth, for his beauty. See, mercy goes beyond our comprehension because God is beyond our comprehension. That's what mercy does. It calls us to worship. It invites us to honor him as God. And so we must look long and hard, I think, at the tension of our sin and God's saving work, showing mercy to all kinds of people, but not every person, not, not so that we can criticize God for his strange work of judgment and wrath, but so we might worship him for what is natural to him. Or as one person has said it, What's amazing is not that God saves everyone, or doesn't save everyone, rather, but what's amazing is that he saves anyone. And I think that should draw us to worship today. Heavenly Father, help us. Whether that need that we have, the great need that you have met by your mercy with worship, whether that's in song, in prayer, in confession, or even enduring suffering, we pray that you would teach us what it looks like to worship you in spirit and in truth today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.